Part Four of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four, in the dark. How can I write of it, sitting here in the shifting shade of the lime trees, with the sunny daisied grass stretching away to the border, where the hollyhocks and lilies and columbines are, my ears filled with the soft swish swish. Of the gardener's scythe at the other end of the garden, and the merry little voices of the children away in the meadow. Only by shutting my eyes and ears to the sweet sounds and sights of summer and the sun, can I recall at all for you the dead silences, the frozen terrors of the long dark nights when I was little and lonely and very very much afraid. The first thing I remember that frightened me. Was running into my father's dressing room, and finding him playing at wild beasts with my brothers. He wore his great fur travelling coat inside out, and his roars were completely convincing. I was borne away screaming, and dreamed of wild beasts for many a long night afterwards. Then came some nursery charades. I was the high-born orphan whom gipsies were to steal, and my part was to lie in a cradle. And at the proper moment to be carried away shrieking, I understood my part perfectly. I was about three, I suppose, and had rehearsed it more than once. Being carried off in the arms of the gipsy, my favourite sister, was nothing to scream at. I thought, but she told me to scream, and I did it. Unfortunately, however, there had been no dress rehearsals, and when on the night of the performance. The high-born orphan found itself close to a big black bonnet and a hideous mask. It did scream to some purpose, and presently screaming itself into some sort of fit or swoon was put to bed, and stayed there for many days, which passed dreamlike. But that old woman haunted my dreams for years, haunts them still, indeed. I tell you, I come across her in my dreams to this day. She bends over me. And puts her face close to mine, and I wake with a spasm of agonized terror. Only now it is not horrible to me to waken in the dark. I draw a few long breaths, and as soon as my heart beats a little less wildly, I fall asleep again. But a child who wakes from an ugly dream does not fall asleep so quickly, for to a child who is frightened, the darkness and the silence of its lonely room. Are only a shade less terrible than the wild horrors of dreamland. One used to lie awake in the silence, listening, listening to the pad pad of one's heart, straining one's ears to make sure that it was not the pad pad of something else, something unspeakable, creeping towards one out of the horrible dense dark. One used to lie quite, quite still. I remember, listening, listening. And when my nurse came to bed and tucked me up, she used to find my pillow wet, and say to the under nurse, "Weakness, you know. The precious poppet doesn't seem to get any stronger." But my pillow was not wet with tears of weakness; these were the dews of agony and terror. My nurse, ah, how good she was to me! Never went downstairs to supper after she found out my terrors, which she very quickly did. She used to sit in the day nursery with the door open a tiny crack, 
and that light was company, because I knew I had only to call out, and someone who loved me would come in and banish fear. But a light without human companionship was worse than darkness, especially a little light. Night lights, deepening the shadows with their horrid possibilities, are a mere refinement of cruelty, and some friends who thought to do me a kindness by leaving the gas burning low gave me one of the most awful nights I ever had. It was a strange house in Sutherland Gardens, a house with large rooms and heavy hangings, with massive wardrobes and deep ottoman boxes. The immense four-post beds stood out about a yard from the wall, for some convenience of sweeping reason, I believe. Consider the horror of having behind you, as you lay trembling in the chill linen of a strange bed, a dark space, no comforting solid wall that you could put your hand up to and touch, but a dark space, from which, even now, in the black silence, something might be stealthily creeping, something which would presently lean over you in the dark, whose touch you would feel, not knowing whether it were the old woman in the mask or some new terror. That was the torture of the first night. The next, I begged that the gas might be left full on. It was, and I fell asleep in comparative security. But while I slept, came some thrifty soul, and finding the gas burning to waste, turned it down, not out, down. I awoke in a faint light, and presently sat up in bed to see where it came from, and this is what I saw. A corpse laid out under white draperies, and at its foot a skeleton with luminous skull and outstretched bony arm. I knew, somewhere far away and deep down, my reason knew, that the dead body was a white dress laid on a long ottoman, that the skull was the opal globe of the gas, and the arm the pipe of the gas bracket. But that was not reason's hour. Imagination held sway, and her poor little victim, who was ten years old then, and ought to have known better, sat up in bed, hour after hour, with the shadowy void behind her, the dark curtains on each side, and in front that horror. Next day I went home, which was perhaps a good thing for my brain. When my father was alive, we lived in a big house in Kennington Lane, where he taught young men agriculture and chemistry. My father had a big meadow and garden, and had a sort of small farm there. Fancy a farm in Kennington! Among the increase that blessed his shed was a two-headed calf. The head and shoulders of this were stuffed, and inspired me with a terror which my brothers increased by pursuing me with a terrible object. But one of my father's pupils, to whom I owe that and many other kindnesses, one day seized me under one arm, and the two-headed horror under the other, and thus equipped we pursued my brothers. They fled shrieking, and I never feared it again. In a dank, stone-flagged room, where the boots were blacked, and the more unwieldy chemicals housed, there was nailed on the wall the black skin of an emu. That skin, with its wiry black feathers that fluttered dismally in the draught, was no mere bird's skin to me. It hated me, 
it wished me ill. It was always lurking for me in the dark, ready to rush out at me. It was waiting for me at the top of the flight, while the old woman with the mask stretched skinny hands out to grasp my little legs as I went up the nursery stairs. I never passed the skin without covering my eyes with my hands. From this terror that walked by night, I was delivered by Mr. Cairns, now public analyst for Sheffield. He took me on his shoulder, where I felt quite safe, reluctant but not resisting, to within a couple of yards of the emu. Now, he said, will you do what I tell you? Not any nearer, I said evasively. Now you know I won't let it hurt you. Yes. Then will you stroke it if I do first? I didn't want to. To please me? That argument was conclusive, for I loved him. Then we approached the black feathers, I clinging desperately to his neck and sobbing convulsively. No, 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 not any nearer. But he was kind and wise and insisted. His big hand smoothed down the feathers. Now, Daisy, you know you promised. Give me your hand. I shut my eyes tight and let him draw my hand down the dusty feathers. Then I opened my eyes a little bit. Now you stroke it. Stroke the poor emu. I did so. Are you afraid now? Curiously enough, I wasn't. Poor Mr. Cairns paid dearly for his kindness. For several weeks I gave him no peace, but insisted on being taken, at all hours of the day and night, to stroke the poor emu. So proud is one of a new courage. After we left Kennington, I seemed to have had a period of more ordinary terrors, of dreams from which to awaken was mere relief, not a horror scarcely less than that of the dream itself. I dreamed of cows and dogs, of falling houses and crumbling precipices. It was not till that night at Rouen that the old horror of the dark came back, deepened by superstitious dread. But all this time I have not told you about the mummies at Bordeaux, and now there is no room for them here. They must go into the next chapter. End of part four.